Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. For some gardeners, fresh okra from the summer garden is a taste treat. For other gardeners who may not appreciate the texture and flavor of okra, it's still worth growing for the beautiful flowers it produces. We have tips for growing okra. Roses are beginning to put on their first show of 2021, but several rose diseases may be lurking on your favorite plants. We talk with a master rosarian on how to thwart rose diseases such as black spot, powdery mildew, and downy mildew. And the plant of the week is the beauty bush, a widely adaptable 10-foot shrub that Warren Roberts of the UC Davis Arboretum describes as having four seasons of beauty, true to its name. It's all on episode 95 of the Garden Basics podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. And we got a text message from a listener who says, I hope you might address the subject of growing okra. Any experience you might have with varieties or tips would be appreciated. It's been very frustrating with a low success rate. Well, when it comes to vegetables, we like to bring in our resident vegetable expert, Sacramento County Master Gardener, Gail Pothauer. And Gail, okra, they really like the heat, don't they? Oh, they do, and they're warm. So you get them in too early and you'll have problems. So need to wait, get them in ground when it's like mid-May. Okra is, uh, shall we say, an acquired taste. Now, if you're from the South, well, you've already, you've probably had that acquired taste since you were young. But for, uh-huh. for many other people, the okra, I guess, politely could be described as having a mucilaginous flavor. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Kind of a, a slimy green bean, maybe. Yes. It has a green bean type flavor, but it's um, a little slippery or gooey. Um, it's perfect if you're cooking gumbo when you want it thickened, but it can be a little off-putting if you're not used to the texture. There are ways you can get around it. Deep fry it, of course, everything's good deep fried, but if you deep fry it or if you cook it with acid, things like tomatoes or vinegar, it kind of eliminates some of that slipperiness. They are, of course, available at most seed racks because I I really think that if you want to grow okra, one good reason to grow okra, even if you're not going to eat it, is grow it for the flowers. Oh, it's beautiful. It's in the same family as hibiscus. So it's it's in the mallow family. So um, hollyhock, hibiscus, cotton, even cacao. Who knew? I had no idea that chocolate was in the same family. But they have this beautiful, wider, kind of a yellowish flower. If you know what a hibiscus or a hollyhock flower looks like, that's what the okra flower is like. And it can get rather large. What, about five feet tall? Right, uh, say between four and six feet. Um, the varieties that we've grown at the Ferox Horticulture Center all seem to be about four feet tall. We often will grow them in a half wine barrel, so we can grow several plants in a large container like that. Um, because they are large, they need to be staked or grow in a large cage. But they're quite um, bushy. They can become you know, quite large plants. They're quite pretty. And the little pods and the flowers, it is quite an attractive plant. 
one warning that I noticed at, at one University of California publication, it says don't plant them where you have grown tomatoes or eggplants as it is susceptible to the same wilts like fusarium and verticillium wilt. Um, I would say perhaps the verticillium wilt, the fusarium wilt that gets on tomatoes is host specific. So I don't know how that would translate into a disease on okra, but certainly verticillium gets on a variety of vegetable crops and ornamental plants. So I would, yeah, I would be a little leery of planting in a bed that maybe had verticillium or a bed that's had nematodes because okra is susceptible to nematodes as well. So if you see the leaves on the okra starting to turn yellow and wilting, then you might suspect one of those wilts. Right. Now, did you know that there is more to the okra plant that's edible than just the pod? Tell me more, Gail. Well, the okra leaves can be prepared like collards or spinach, um, or you can use it fresh in a salad. Also, I have heard that okra seeds can be roasted and ground into kind of a caffeine-free coffee substitute, which sounds kind of interesting. I've never tried that myself. And the flowers can be used much like you would squash blossoms. So stuff them with ricotta cheese and deep fry them. So, yeah, there's more edible than just the pods. And by the way, the pods do need to be harvested when they're small, say three inches long. I use my index finger as a guide for that. If they get much larger, they can get tough and stringy. Now, according to the Master Gardener Program of Sonoma County that has an excellent uh, publication on okra, they suggest that one way to cut the slime factor is cooking okra with lemon juice, vinegar, or even with tomatoes. Right. And I actually read that just the other night on from Renee Shepherd, Renee's Garden Seeds. She has a lot of cooking tips on her website about the seeds that she sells. And yeah, she had that on there as well. And again, we should point out it's a warm weather plant. Okra probably uh, best planted when daytime temperatures are regularly in the 80s and 90s. So definitely wait until uh, May or June to plant okra. Right. And if you have a short growing season, it might not be the crop for you because it does need warmth. It does need, um, you know, at least two, maybe three months of that really warm weather. So if you live in a climate where you can successfully grow tomatoes, corn, or melons, then you shouldn't have any problem with growing okra. According to the Sunset National Garden book, okra can be grown in all zones. Hmm. Good luck on that, folks. Yeah, I would think if you lived in a coastal climate or something where in an area that doesn't have a good three months of warm weather, it might be a challenge. But there could be varieties that are a little bit earlier. So that would certainly be something you should check out. At the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, we have grown okra most every year. I know we're doing that again this year. And we tend to stick with varieties that are All-America Selection winners because they're varieties that have been tested throughout North America and have been shown to be successful growing in most climates. And they have good disease resistance and that sort of thing. So the ones that we have grown and that we really enjoy are burgundy that you mentioned. And that's an old open pollinated one that's about four feet tall. Handle fire is one I think that we're going to be growing again this year. It's also four feet tall. Clemson spineless, which is an old heirloom, is an All-America selection from the 1930s. It's about four feet tall. 
And then jambalaya, we do that several years ago. It's about four or five feet tall, has green pods, and it's a hybrid. And all of those have done very well for us. Some of the other varieties recommended by uh, the Master Gardeners up in Sonoma County include uh, Blondie, Bubba Baby, and uh, Red Velvet. There's also another one that is an all-market selection that is kind of dwarfed. It's called Cajun Delight, so it's another good one. So there's a, a variety of okras out there that you could grow that have either green pods or red pods, so they're very decorative. The flowers are beautiful. You can also, if you let the pods get too large and they you shouldn't eat them now because they're stringy and woody, you can grow them ornamentally, say, in an arrangement. They get kind of woody and you can put those in a fall arrangement or something. However, if you leave those over-mature pods on the plant, that will sort of stop the plant from producing more flowers and edible pods. Mm. So if you want to grow them just for ornamental purposes, you won't get a lot, but you'll get some large woody pods. But if you want to grow them to eat, take those mature, over-mature pods off. Just cut them off. Well, I would think, too, by removing those uh, older pods, it would produce more flowers as well. Exactly. Right. Yeah. If you leave those older pods on, it will keep the plant from flowering and producing more, you know, small pods that you would want to eat. It's a big, pretty flower. Some mm-hmm. people some people enjoy the taste of okra. I, I'm being diplomatic here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's really a beautiful plant. Oh, it is. It's, it makes a real statement in the garden because it is fairly tall, you know, four to five feet tall. It's bushy. It's got beautiful flowers on it. It's got gorgeous pods, especially if you grow varieties to have the red pods or, and red stems. So it's very ornamental. has a lot of uses. In fact, one of our master gardeners wrote an article for our newsletter several years ago and found all kinds of interesting facts about okra. Did you know that the okra stem fibers can be used as an ice cream stabilizer? Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it <laughs> apparently it retards ice crystal formation. And um, it, so it has a lot of different uses. It has okra seeds have unsaturated fats in it. So, I mean, that okra plant has a lot of uses. We've learned a lot today about growing okra. Gail Pothauer, Sacramento County Master Gardener. Thanks for your help on this. My pleasure, Fred. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We are talking with a master rosarian. His name is Baldo Viegas. He is a noted rosarian, speaks all over the country. He's living here in California with 3,000 roses, by the way. 
And since he travels the nation, he travels the world looking at roses. Uh, let's talk about rose diseases. And here it is. It's, it's high time for roses here in California, probably soon to be high time for roses where you are as, as late spring uh, begins. So, Baldo, what are the diseases most prevalent in roses and what can people do about them? You know, the number one disease uh, probably across the country is black spot. And with black spot, you can recognize it because of the black spots on the on the leaves of the roses. And then if you look at it, the um, black spot doesn't look defined. It has kind of feathery edges. And you see it on the top of the leaf. One way that you you should have done, uh, you should have prune your roses and then clean up the the foliage that fell down or the leaves that fell down from that were left over. If you do sanitation right after uh, pruning, that usually prevents the black spot. But now that you have a black spot in your roses, you need to go to your local nursery and then uh, look for um, some fungicides that are labeled for black spot. And most of them will be labeled for black spot. Start with the, with the lowest uh, um, degree of toxicity. Caution uh, is the lowest degree of toxicity. So try to get those, those products that have the caution label. And you can uh, start with uh, neem oil, for instance. But with neem oil, you have to apply it in the evening because if it gets hot during the day, uh, you're going to burn your, uh, your foliage. I would recommend the neem oil because that's a proven product. That's some really good information you just gave there, especially looking for the signal word on any sort of pesticide, fungicide that you might purchase. There's going to be one of three words on any pesticide label. It'll either say caution, warning, or danger. Danger, obviously, is the most dangerous one. And caution uh, reflects the product has the least toxicity. But as always, uh, read and follow all label directions. And if it says to... uh, put on gloves or put on a shield or anything like that, do so. Uh, Follow those label instructions. Very important to do that. I like your idea with Black Spot of just uh, cleaning it up uh, at the end of the season and and trying to stop the spread that way. I guess some other tactics might be to uh, pick roses that aren't uh, susceptible to Black Spot. And there are many, many roses that are... um, uh they're disease-resistant to black spot. Um, a lot of the knockout roses are, are known to be uh, very resistant to, to black spot. If you go to the East Coast, you're going to see black uh, knockout roses everywhere because of that. Uh, in the East Coast, uh, uh, a lot of the roses are very, very highly susceptible to, um, to black spot because of the weather in those areas. You have a lot of humidity and it's hot. And Black Spot loves that kind of uh, weather. Yeah, there's uh, all gardening is local, as that guy on the radio used to say all the time. And it's very true. What about some of these uh, homegrown recipes for curing Black Spot? Some of them involve baking soda. You know, I'm one of those that uh, if he doesn't have a label, I don't use it. I don't recommend any of those project products myself. Uh, I don't use them. And, um, you know, I like to read directions on the label because... Uh, you know, not all these home remedies are the. In, they're proven to be as effective. Other rose problems, diseases that uh, affect a wide swath of the United States uh, includes powdery mildew. What is that? Well, powdery mildew is a uh, surface um, uh, fungus that is, is um, white. 
is on the surface of the of the, of the leaves and affects the the uh, new growth. So at this time of the year, in in many parts of the country, you're going to see powdery mildew, especially in those susceptible varieties. The older varieties of roses are very very susceptible to powdery mildew. Some of the newer varieties uh, are very disease resistant. So I would start with that. Uh, always try to uh, go to the nursery and then look for those varieties that are resistant to powdery mildew. But best yet, walk around your neighborhood. Uh, look for the roses and look for those roses that look the best. And then try to find out what those roses are and then try to purchase those roses instead of um, taking the word from, uh, from the nurserymen. One good piece of advice in that regard, if you're trying to identify a rose, is, of course, take several pictures of the rose, not only the flower, but the entire plant and also the leaf structure as well. You can try to Google the answer, but uh, you'd be better off going to probably your local uh, rose society and and asking those people. Oh, I don't trust the Internet. (laughs) I I answer a lot of questions on rose uh, problems. And I tell you, I'm uh, I'm always uh, surprised of, on the answers that I see in the internet, and um, I always trust the uh, university web uh, pages because they have the best uh, information out there. Yeah, here in California, the University of California Ag and Natural Resources has a lot of great information on on growing plants that is scientifically proven and backed and peer-reviewed. And sometimes if you just do a search for rose problems or any problem uh, in your yard as far as plants go, if you put uh, the uh, or the initials UCANR after it in the search box, uh, What's going to pop up first is information from the University of California, which can at least get you off on a great start. Do that for the uh, universities in your area, wherever you may live, because there are some great agricultural schools throughout the country that can uh, help you out a lot. What are some of your favorite, uh, shall we say, .edu uh, sources for uh, garden information besides uh, the UC program? The UC system has by far the best. North Carolina and has also very good uh, websites. Texas A&M has also excellent material. Uh, Cornell. Uh, Cornell has uh, uh, fantastic materials. Those are the ones that I use the most. There's some good ones down in Florida as well. The University of Florida has uh, amazing information. On insects, uh, that's the best overall. For this, they also treat a lot of diseases, and I also go to them for additional information when I once I, I uh, identify the problem. I always get one of the uh, homegrown cures for powdery mildew mixed up with the homegrown cure for downy mildew, and that has to do with water. In, in one situation, water can reduce the incidence, and in the other, it could increase the incidence. Try to unconfuse me, would you? Yeah, powdery mildew is a surface fungus, and it's a totally different type of fungus. It's not a water mold. And it's on top of the leaves, and it's uh, basically a, a sort of like a layer of um, mycelium or uh, strands of the fun- of the fungus, sort of like a mold, and you can literally rub it off. But you know when you see it, it has already deformed the leaves of the roses. So the best strategy is also, you know, as I said before, is always go with um, disease-resistant roses. With uh, downy mildew, it's a water mold fungus. This one has some um, purple blotches, but 
the purple blotches are kind of angled. You know, they you they follow the uh, the leaf veins, so you can see the angles of these spots. In California, it's uh, common in the coastal areas of California where you have the cool, moist weather, and generally you see it from um, from the time they start seeing uh, uh, mature leaves on the roses. That would be in, like in May to uh, to the fall. In other parts of the country, where you have high humidity and low temperatures, uh, you can see it in the in the during the summer months. I have seen it very commonly in um, in Connecticut, for example, in September and October. So, if I've got it right, then with powdery mildew, if I uh, judiciously wash off the plants in the early morning, that can help. Uh, control powdery mildew, but it wouldn't do a darn worth of good if it was downy mildew. No, no. With downy mildew, it's a systemic pro, uh, systemic fungus. It's in the it's, it's between the the tissue of the of the uh, leaves, uh, and it's followed by severe defoliation. With powdery mildew, you don't get the defoliation. the The leaves stay on the plant, but they'll be kind of whitish because of the infection of the uh, of the fungus. So then another uh, problem that people may be having with their roses, and it might be operator error, is if those roses are getting hit by sprinkler water, that could increase the incidence of a disease like downy mildew. Yes, or black spot, or black spot, especially if you have a, 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 a little bit of um, disease in, in your roses and you have sprinklers, and then that helps up. Uh, disperse the uh, the spores all over the place, and then you're going to have a severe infestation of um, infection of um, of the disease. So here at Baldo Acres, with your three thousand roses, Baldo, is it all on drip irrigation? No, no. But I, what I do is I I put the sprinklers during the day, okay, where the plants are will will dry up in a matter of uh, in between an hour after. Uh, after the sprinklers go on. Water early for best results. Baldo Viegas, Master Rosarian, retired California State Entomologist, and uh, what a fabulous garden he has here in Northern California. Baldo, thanks so much for paying us a visit. Thank you, Fred. You you come back again. I will in the next uh, bloom cycle of the roses. <laughs> yes, that will be in June. In Every six weeks, we get a bloom cycle in this area. So come back. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you're going to find more information about how to get in touch with us. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call. You do it via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash garden basics. It's easy. Give it a try. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and reviews section. You can text us questions and pictures or leave us your question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. And please tell us where you're from because that'll help us greatly accurately answer your garden questions. Because after all, all gardening is local. 
In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets. That includes Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, you'll find a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. Here on the Plant of the Week, we like to bring in Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, to talk about something that's either putting on a show now or a plant with wide interest that you just might want to have in your very own yard. And uh, this week, Warren, we're talking about the beauty bush, and I'll let you pronounce the botanical name. Well, the botanical name in, in American Latin with the German is Colquitsia. Full name is Colquitsia amabilis. It was named for a, a German professor of botany, Richard Kolkwitz, uh, in the 1800s, I think it was. The shrub is native to China. It's well-named. Beauty bush is a really good name for it because it's a graceful, large shrub, multi-stemmed. I've never seen one trained as a tree. I guess you could. And the ones I've seen are about uh, 12 feet wide and about 15 feet tall is about the biggest ones I've seen. And even the bark is beautiful. It, it uh, is kind of ivory, tan-colored, papery bark, which peels off the uh, larger stems in a very attractive way. It's in the Caprifoliaceae, which uh, family includes Abelia and a number of other uh, shrubs and trees. And I think it's called Caprifoliaceae because goats like the leaves. That's my guess, anyway. Okay. <laughs> it was very popular in Victorian times, I think, in large gardens. The flowers are pink. They're kind of broadly tubular with a, with the petal segments, you know, spreading out. And then in the throat of the flower, there are little orange spots. It's very pretty close up. And then the ovary of the flower, which is where the seeds are produced, is uh, uh, covered with a kind of a velvet. Hmm. A, kind of a fuzzy velvet. So the even when the flowers have fallen, the the fruits or the seed producing structures are so are very attractive and worth keeping. Uh, I've I've never seen anybody prune it. That's another nice thing about it. It just looks nice all the time, even when it is is leafless. It still looks very nice. Well, especially with um, peeling bark. Yeah, it, it's nice that way. So I would I certainly encourage people to grow it. There are a couple of cultivars, that is to say, select forms. The uh, typical one is is a rather medium pink, but there are some darker pink ones available. Uh, otherwise, they look very much the same. Once it's well established, it doesn't need a lot of irrigation in dry summer areas, but it needs some. It does, after all, come from China, where they have rain during uh, the growing season about once once a week. So the soil never really dries out completely. I have seen them, though, have where they're well-established, old shrubs on in old uh, ranch gardens, semi-abandoned in, in California, where they, keep, they keep going. So Colquitsia, Amabilis, the beauty bush, another one of the beautiful shrubs and trees that come originally from China. And it can take full sun to uh, part shade and is adaptable in, in many zones across the United States. The beauty bush. Yes, indeed. 
Warren, let's talk a little bit about uh, the University of California Davis Arboretum. Uh, the COVID-19 situation has put its annual plant sale in uh, sort of an online situation. And this might be something for those of you who are listening to the Garden Basics podcast, say within 50 miles or so of Davis to take advantage of, is the online plant sales that are going on during April and May at the UC Davis Arboretum. It's a rather ex- uh, extensive list of plants, isn't it, Warren? Oh, yes. There's hundreds and hundreds of different things where that are mostly grown right here in the Central Valley of California with with its uh, challenging climate and, and water. So, yes, many different kinds of things, shrubs, perennials, even a few trees, succulents, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful list of plants, and you can get it online. Find out more about the online plant sales going on there and the times of the sales and uh, what you have to do to pick them up at the uh, Arboretum website, which is arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, thanks for telling us about this week's plant of the week, the beauty bush. You're welcome. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.